for joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast. With me, as always, and smiling menacingly, mischievously, your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. <laughs> did you knock on the mic or did you knock on the on the table? On my table. There's <laughs> been a knock at the podcast, oh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, boy. How menacing. <laughs> I'm your other co-host, Cam, and... Kirk said it. You know what we're reviewing now. If you didn't already, this is uh, our review of M. Night Shyamalan's The Master of Twists, The Master of Thrillers, The Master of Other Things. I don't know. Um, it's his film, A Knock. Sorry, I keep calling it A Knock at the Cabin. This is like The Joker all over again. Knock at the Cabin is the name of the movie. Knock at the Cabin. It's not a knock. There were multiple knocks. So maybe it should be called A Knocking. At the cabin. Oh. If if Dave Bautista comes a knocking, don't open the door. Is what the movie should be called. A series of knocks at your <laughs> Airbnb cabin. <laughs> yes, that's that's what they should title it for sure. That's that'll be good for the hashtags. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Imagine all the acronym for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'd be perfect. But that's the film we're reviewing. Uh, it's called Knock at the Cabin. It's, it's M. Night Shyamalan's latest following uh, his last feature film release, which was old, I believe. Um, yeah. Quite the long uh, and extensive film career for M. Night Shyamalan as I was kind of taking a stroll down memory lane. You forget how many films uh, he has directed and produced and, and been a part of. And it's, it's really impressive. I have to give major props. And I, I want to do that because... M. Night Shyamalan is such an interesting, um, you know, he, he's such an interesting case study as a director. He, he just totally dances to the beat of his own drum. He has always sort of um, done the projects that he wants to do, how he wants to do them. A lot of times, particularly later in his career, um, you know, fun, fi- financing most of it with his own production company that he developed, Blinding right. Light or Blinding Edge uh, Productions. And people continue to come see it. So I, I think there, there's there's something to that. And I want to say that because I know that he is a divisive director. And I have certainly said not so kind things about his films before. And, you know, it remains to be seen if I'll do that tonight for, for this film. We'll talk about it. But, you know, credit where credit is due for M. Night Shyamalan, the career that he has created, um, what he represents. And he has been a, a commercial success and you know throughout most of his career and a critical success many many times with his work so just a quick hat tip to mr Shyamalan. yeah i'd be interested in how people feel about him because it's it's a very confusing relationship i mean by the time you're 12 you've seen the sixth sense Uh, like that's just a must it must happen Mm -hmm. right and you're horrified and scarred for life and you say why did someone let me watch this (laughs) because it's very scary and then you start to dive into his other stuff and you're like oh kind of like this i don't really understand what's happening here i really hate avatar the last airbender and you just go down the list and and very very divisive throughout so 
we've we've posted a, a post out there. Cam dropped it earlier about what's your favorite one. Make sure you go and check it out and see it from earlier this week and go find it. Go scroll through all of our posts. We post like 20 times a day. So just like everything and then you'll find it. Um, but we really want to know like what what it is. My my biggest question this was posed to me a number of years ago mm-hmm. is M night Shyamalan's the happening, which I think was came out in, if I, my notes are correct, 2008. My question is that was perceived as the worst M night Shyamalan movie at the time. And someone posed to me, wait a second. He he's actually being self-aware and he's making fun of himself. Mm. And so with that movie in particular, none of his other ones, but I, it's kind of a challenge. I, I, I challenge you, Cam, and anyone else out there to go back and watch The Happening with Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel and and to watch it with an irony, an irony, a sense of irony to say, he knows there's a twist. And the twist is, it's the air that kills everybody. Yeah, it's yeah. the environment. And to watch it, and it becomes quite enjoyable from that perspective. But if you look at it like, for real like the air is attacking us it's quite abysmal so i want to know if anyone else wants to take the challenge out there because it's quite quite life-changing yeah that's interesting that's interesting and you could ask that question about a lot of his films honestly if you approach it that way because he does play his cards pretty close to the vest Mm -hmm. you know he he doesn't he's not going to tell you how you should interpret one of his films or how you should react to one of his twists or whatever so it could be that Maybe he just knows that we'll interpret it one way, but the but the reality is that he's just he's being super self aware and kind of being ironic the whole time. <laughs> it, right. it could be, it could be that it certainly opens things up. So I like that. That's we should call it the happening challenge. Hashtag the happening challenge. Let's get it rolling. Hashtag. Marky Mark, get ready for comeback. We're 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 on it. Um, we just want him to to feel better about that movie. <laughs> that's right. Great. The other thing about him, Kirk, that I, that I find interesting as I was kind of going through his list of movies, most of them are PG thirteen. This yes. one, this one was rated R. I think in large part due to language. There was some violence. Um, there, there was some bloody violence that I think probably led to the R rating as well. But most of his films are PG thirteen. So um, there's an accessibility factor with M Night Shyamalan. A lot, of, a lot of times, you know, probably kids that grew up around the same time as us and, and certainly a little bit later, maybe the sixth sense was their first thriller. Maybe it right. was their first experience, like you said, and that's kind of cool to think about. And, and, you know, maybe that's, you know, it just opens up his impact to a whole different scale when you think about it that way. Right. I mean, what year was that? I really think that I was at oh, the theater. one ninety nine oh one. Oh my gosh. Really? Like, I was like 11, maybe 10. I'm just 99, 99, 99. Oh my goodness. I saw that in the theater cam. I was like nine. My parents would never, (laughs) they didn't let me do it, but I knew my, I knew my sisters had watched it when it came out. I knew my sisters had watched it. I didn't watch it till much, much, much later Mm. because it's just one of those things where like I wasn't old enough when it came out. So it's like, you have to swing back around and watch it when it comes. But I, I remember them being, horrified by that movie and having issues with that movie <laughs> in, in terms of it messing with their sleep for a long time yeah. uh, and thinking, wow, that thing must be just otherworldly scary. But unfortunately for me, I, uh, you know, it has the most famous twist ever, probably the most quoted twist 
of all time or, or mm-hmm. the most quoted line, the I see dead people line and, and the twists being that, you know, he was dead the whole time that I knew that going into the movie, you know, right. and that, that's what sucks because it was so popular that like the, the cat was out of the bag by the time that I got to watch it. But right, right. It and, happens. And for most people these days, like that's just in pop culture that yes. you may not have even known that that was the movie and you probably get to start watching it. you're like wait is this the he's been dead the whole time movie yes <laughs> like i feel like then you know a couple generations down that's what it is so yeah <laughs> well I, I highly recommend taking your nine-year-old to go see the six <laughs> yes that's good that'll be good <laughs> yeah. uh it's, it's a rite of passage for <laughs> sure uh but let's talk about m night's latest uh which released in the theaters you know last weekend february whatever third I guess it was. Sure. And let's just say that <laughs> called knock at the cabin starring Dave Batista, Jonathan Groff among others. And let's get into it. Kirk, you, my friend have the privilege of giving us a synopsis of this film and you can fire when ready. Excellent. Conquest. War. Famine. Ooh. Death. Otherwise known as. The Beatles. We find a group of demented heroes scurrying about the forest. Their mission, save the world. How? By convincing an unsuspecting family to kill one of their own. But the catch, they must do so willingly. M. Night Shyamalan's latest thriller begs the question, is one life worth saving over all other lives? Beware the next time you hear a knock at the cabin. In theaters now. Nice. That was like very Twilight Zone-y. I liked that. You know how that the guy on the Twilight Zone used to always do the intros and I don't know. I always loved that. Yeah. And that that's what that reminded me of. We should have played the music behind you. The do 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 sometimes there was a a uh predicament like this yeah. in, in the Twilight Zone where you had to think of a question. If you have taken uh business ethics or any sort of ethics class over the course of your career whether it be high school or college you've certainly been posed with a similar question do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few that is the essential question that is asked here and presented in all of the promotional materials save your family or save humanity save the cheerleader save the world save the cheerleader save the world exactly um so that's where we're at and that's basically what this movie is about but kirk before we get into the machinations of this film, the things that make this tick, the cogs in the wheel. Let's talk about mm-hmm. the acting performances, which is where we yes. always start. Um, not a very big cast, but you know, a few different players uh, here, including Dave Bautista, Rupert Grant, Jonathan Groff, et cetera, et cetera. And let's get into it. Kirk, who is your Oscar going to for, and the Oscar goes to this week? I have to say that the Oscar for me goes to Mr. Dave Bautista tonight However, this is by default because I'm going to be very open and honest here, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Safe space. The acting performances just were not great. And there's a little bit of that in the in the dialogue with this script. It's a little all over the place. There's some weird random lines thrown out there and some weird anecdotes and metaphors. Um the, the, the attempts at being more significant than they are, or they miss the mark. And a lot of it is just not great. Dave Batista does his darndest 
he is working so hard to shed Drax of his MCU uh, character persona away and really be just this gentle giant. And for the most part, he does a good job. He really does. But because his speech is almost staccato at times, it leans into or gives the effect that he's not actually that intelligent when really he probably is like his character probably is, but because the rhythm of his dialogue, it doesn't lend himself to really take off with this character and really get to see past his physical build because as he is the gentle giant, he's the largest person in in that room or any room for that matter. And he's supposed to be the physical threat while the larger uncontrollable plague threats are going on throughout this film. And it it just doesn't quite work for me. But ultimately, in the room of, let's see, seven people, he is the best actor. So by default, Dave Bautista wins the Oscar tonight. Yes. I unfortunately have to agree with Kirk that the acting performances in this movie are are rough. I mean, I, I, I think... If you, you know, for me looking at this movie um, from an analytical point of view and trying to kind of critique it for what it is, the acting performances are, are perhaps the most glaring um, miscue in this movie. It's, it's really distractingly bad. And it's not because people are giving lifeless performances. It's actually the opposite. It's that they're overacting to such a degree that it's preposterous. I mean, they're, and, and how can you, you would, you would say to yourself, given the uh, subject matter of this movie, how can overacting be possible? The stakes are the highest possible stakes, you know, the end of times, uh, the death of a family member, extremely high stakes. And yet the delivery and and the the choices that are made in in uh, you know speaking this dialogue are shockingly over the top and yeah. um, it really really messes with the whole flow of the movie and the dialogue and the dialogue is already not particularly well written to begin with to Kirk's point so it's just really tough at times particularly. Um, <clears throat> From Ben Aldridge, I would say is probably the the the, the sorest thumb <laughs> there, the the one that sticks out the most because um, he's just putting way too much into. I mean, he's just he's taking it way too far. But I'm I'm giving my Oscar to um, Dave Bautista as well. I'm excited for Dave Bautista just because I, I'm. I find his career trajectory so interesting. We've seen a lot of wrestlers turn actors. Over the years, it's it makes sense why that transition happens. It's still happening. You know, John Cena is bursting onto the scene. Uh, Ronda Rousey, who was a UFC fighter and now is a wrestler, is also involved in acting, etc. Um, it makes sense. There's a lot of showmanship involved in all of that. But Dave Bautista is probably one of the you know poster childs for a successful transition from wrestling into acting. He might be the most successful person to, to ever do it. And he's sort of adding to that now Um, to Kirk's point. There is a little bit of, he's still being typecast, uh, which is hard because he is an imposing physical presence. So he's to a certain degree, sort of always going to be typecast into roles that suit that kind of um, physique. So there is that, but I think, um, 
he had he's he's made incredible strides and it, it is it really doing a fantastic job but still has still has a little bit more work to do to really carve out his own path I think as an actor but I think he will get there I think he has all of the tools and I think he can get there I just think that sometimes and, and maybe this is on the directors too they kind of try to put him in a box in terms of his performance and so he can't really reach his full potential but amongst uh, his his colleagues and, and cohorts in this film he is the clear standout uh, certainly the best of the bunch and and the one who really keeps in uh, an even level approach throughout and is consistent in his characterizations consistent with his choices he doesn't go over the top he um, you know at times is a little bit too staccato kind of what Kirk is talking about in his speech pattern which can make you be like okay that's that bit is a little overplayed but overall I think there's a lot to be proud of of this performance for Dave Bautista and I think that he is certainly on the right path this basically I, I read after I saw the movie that M. Night Shyamalan cast him or, or was interested in him after seeing Blade Runner 2049 and it made so much more sense after that because I'm like oh M. Night Shyamalan wanted that character from that movie and sort of directed him in that way. And it's like, okay, so some of this is coming from the, you know, behind the camera, not just in front of it. So that, that, that sort of gave a little more clarity to the full picture of what was going on there. But I still think it's, it's worth giving Dave Bautista his flowers for his performance in Knock at the Cabin. Yeah, the Blade Runner character was so much better. Honestly, if you had I no agree. idea that this man was a professional wrestler and that he wasn't Drax and you just see him like that, how that character's entrance in Blade 2049 is so incredible Yes, and it's brief and it's powerful. Uh, it's very concise. And that's what, there's a lot of ambiguity with the rest of these characters and we don't, the script doesn't need us to get into the, all of their backstories deeply. It's better that it's, it's distant, but that character that's almost what you would want replicated in in this sense like this torn um just just completely like doesn't know which way to turn but you know he, he had to lean into of course that he's a second grade teacher and what would a second grade teacher be as gruff and rough no he wouldn't be he is this he is a gentle giant to to be to be this uh i don't know this <laughs> this uh this uh figure that that's per- could protect you but chooses not to and so it's a weird it's a weird antithesis there so i get it i get it but i have a lot of problems this, with it this too. character is like a courtroom sketch of the character from uh blade runner 2049 yes. like yes you can see where they were coming from but it's also not as good um where are you going for where are you going for scene stealer kirk oh scene stealer also by default i'm going with ron weasley it's gonna go to mr rupert grint um because you're right you know everyone else decent job but there's something about him that i liked um just before he is absolutely obliterated um spoiler alert by the way um there's there's just something that he has that is able to be leveled up against the other actors in the room there that he is able to really just go off into a world 
and just commit so well that you have no doubt that that's the person that you're supposed to be looking at in that room, that you have forgotten that you're watching a movie. You've forgotten that you had to pay the dynamic pricing at AMC sightlines. <laughs> you are strictly seeing a person in a situation that they cannot control and how they are uh, reacting to it and how they are trying to survive that moment and what their final words are. And there's something so incredibly um, animalistic, not animalistic, maybe um, just instinctive about it because the way that his eyes are just like piercing, begging you to save him, even though his mouth is saying you can't. Um, I just, I really just love that moment before we lost him. The things that I didn't like about Rupert Grin's performance is that it seemed like a, like a Bill Burr ripoff, comedian Bill Burr, uh, because he's supposed to be Bostonian. And he just, he talks like him and he, he kind of like throws his weight around like him. He kind of stands like him even too. Uh, but otherwise, I, I really thought that he's next in uh, for Scene Stealer. Yeah, I mean, I hate to just like copy everything that that you're doing, but I had Rupert Grint as well for for most of the same reasons. I don't have like a ton of critical notes for Rupert Grint. He really wasn't on the screen for very long, and during that time, he did a much better job than any of the other characters at conveying his character's feelings and thoughts about everything that is happening through nonverbals as well as spoken dialogue. So I appreciated that. Um, the two women who are members of this, uh, you know, tra- <laughs> quartet of <laughs> doom bringers, <laughs> uh, just really, really lay it on thick, really lay it on thick. And it's, it's it's far too much, particularly um, Abby Quinn who plays Adrian. Wow, um, it's just it, it, <laughs> there. It's it's like somebody reading a monologue because they really need a paycheck. Is what is what it feels like. Like they are like desperately trying to get a job at the local theater. And I'm not trying. I I realize that that sounds like super um, demeaning. It's not meant to. But seriously, like. And I, I'm saying a lot of this because I feel like a lot of it comes from behind the camera and M. Night directing it and deciding which cuts and deciding how they go about it. I think he was pushing them to way oversell this stuff. And I don't know why, because it really hurts the effect of the movie. Um, and I think Rupert Grint, even though I'm giving him my scene stealer, was subject to that as well. There are times where it's just too far, but he does a better job of kind of the micro communication factor with his character like Kirk said communicating with his eyes communicating with the inflection of his voice with the way that he breathes etc it was well done in the short time that he was in the film but man it's just it's um you know I have to say the (laughs) I got home from the theater and, and started reading reviews um after I'd kind of decided where I fell on this movie and was shocked to see how much praise we got for the acting performances because I just felt like that was such an easy and obvious miss in this movie. I couldn't believe that I was seeing people just heap praise on Jonathan Groff and Dave Bautista and the rest. I I get the Dave Bautista stuff because I think a lot of people come from the lens of, well, he's a wrestler. This is his first really big major dramatic role 
yada, yada, yada. That's fine. But um, a lot of the issues that Jonathan Groff has had his whole career on screen, the cornball delivery, et cetera, it's all there. It's all there. And like again, like not to, not to bag on Ben Aldrich, but this is just not his best performance. And I haven't seen a lot of his work, but this is not it. This is not it. Um, it's, it's way, way overblown. And just like, it's there's no finesse there's no there's no intention behind it it's just forcing a square peg into a round hole is what it Mm -hmm. feels like it's just like using a chainsaw to try to like mow your lawn it's so intense yeah it's it's crazy i'm just like i have to believe that a lot of it you know m night knew that he was pushing them that way i just don't know why i can't make sense of it he just has a grudge against those women and everyone in this acting crew. And he seriously, I'm going to ruin you. <laughs> I don't know if he's just like, if he's just like lost touch with, I don't know. I, I honestly cannot make sense of it. And I also can't make sense of the people who went out of their way to praise the performances in this movie, because as much as like, obviously everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I just was floored that that was what people were taking away from this, but you know, I wonder if he is also suffering from, you know, like the Taika Waititi's of the world where their first their first films out, they are creative, they are exciting, they are unique, they are dynamic and they're under the filter of of a studio and yeah. then they get off on their own and they get a lot of power and then they do what they want and then you just see no, you still need guidance. You are you're an incredibly creative soul, but you still need a counsel around you to tell you that hey, that that didn't quite work. Um, yeah, like hey, know, that's just, that's cheesy, dude. You know? Yeah, I mean, I really think both of them are in the in those same boats to to link like Taika's uh, more recent success and M Night's um, you know success in the early '90s. Like that's that's really what it what it feels like to me because they are good directors. We know that they have put out good work, but are they trusting the people around them or are they so full into their ego or uh, do they feel like they need to prove something because of their incredible fame and height of creativity that they have to replicate it, right? That's always a thing to be able to say, I did it on my own and no one helped me. No, get all the help you can and then still take the award. It's that, it's that simple. It's fine. (laughs) It's like Jim Cameron too. Like there's a, there's a bit of hubris that comes along where like, I wonder how good both of the avatar movies would have been if there was just more voices in that room. And and, and I'm not, I don't know the intimate production details of James Cameron, but I, feel like having watched many behind the scenes and many interviews with that dude that I understand what kind of person he is. And I can tell you, he's not taking a lot of creative input from people on his script. So, uh, it's, yeah, that's, that stuff is needed. It really is. All right, let's move into the production and let's talk about this, this movie, which is, it's a very high concept movie. Kirk laid out the, the, the premise high concept, meaning that it's, it's a straight to the brain premise. A group of people show up, they give you a proposition, they're telling you the world's going to end unless you kill one of your family members willingly, Um, and you have to decide, you know, it's kind of like a a prisoner's dilemma of sorts, who's lying, who's not, what's happening outside the room, etc. But let's talk about this movie, that premise, the production, etc., and see 
where we land. Kirk, what was your showstopper for this film? What blew you away? Uh, maybe I, I shouldn't know. phrase it that way. <laughs> what did you not hate? Is that is that more in line with where you're landing? Oh man, it's um, it's difficult. I have to say that there are just like a few key moments that 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 he got it right. I can't even I can't even really lean into the fact that I I liked or enjoyed the the overarching theme. Uh, I, 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 here's, here's the things that stood out to me. Let's just call it this. There's a moment early on there. It feels like there's no danger. We literally get to the knock at the cabin and I'm not scared (laughs) at all. Um, big red flag. So I, I, there's right once they get in and the fire poker is grabbed and they're swinging at each other. I'm like, Oh man, if this was in 3D, I feel like I would have been hit with something. Like I really feel like the moment that they enter and they're fighting off, they meaning uh, Jonathan Groff and Aldridge and Wynn, they're fighting off this group of strangers that are coming to attack them. They are, it's very good that that moment right there up until that fight scene ends. Okay. Uh, the next good scene is when they just off Rupert Grint. Very shocking, kind of expected, but how visible that was and the Foley artist, bravo, bravo. You made me cringe, absolutely cringe. And the final moment, if I have to pick three that I'm subjecting myself to, <laughs> I would say uh, Wynn's demeanor uh, th- throughout was was very well captured. Uh, it was very well captured that she was still a child covering her ears, hiding under her, her dad and uh, just making sure that she was still childlike throughout and at no point did she suddenly become like she didn't grab the gun and say you're not gonna touch my dad's you know <laughs> like nothing like that happened so that was kept on point Austin Vista, baby <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, hey, maybe it would have been good actually that's a good that's a good insert there I I think that those are really the only things I could speak to it's a cabin <laughs> They don't leave it very often, except for a few uh, flashbacks. I just, that's all I can give to the to the showstopper aspect of this film. I'm so glad you brought up Wynn, um, because I think that one of the things that, that M. Night Shyamalan has consistently done over the course of his career is successfully utilize child actors to yes. deliver a desired effect. And, you know, we're not going to get into we're certainly never going to get into criticizing a child actor's performance or, or anything like that. I think you can give flowers where necessary, but the, I love that you called out just like the childlike, you know, almost essence in this film, the presence of it, the, the, the genuineness, the authenticity of it, because that's, that's, that's real and it's palpable and it's not really something I had considered, but it really is like a signature of M night Shyamalan, over the course of his career that he's able to do this. So, um, right. A lesser writer when she escapes briefly out of the house would have said, Oh, she's going to go get the gun. She knows the code yeah. and she's going to storm in there and maybe hide it from them. And they're going to get the gun later. That would have been a lesser writer and lesser director. But to his point and to his credit, he said that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't that happen. Do it. Right, because it wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. And she gets captured pr- pretty much almost immediately. <laughs> yeah, they they do they do hatch a plan to have her have her leave the cabin, and she gets caught. And you're like, yeah, 
for sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's how that would go. And so that that is that is a breath of fresh air for sure. Um, on Showstopper, I I'm going to give a shout out to uh, M Night Shyamalan's distinct visual aesthetic, which was at play in this movie. And I think that the level of difficulty is much harder to apply that aesthetic in this film because of the singular filming location being a cabin in the woods, which is one of, first of all, the most overused and, and overly familiar, uh, you know, locations for a film, particularly a horror film, thriller film. So to make that feel fresh, new, um, sharp and, and visually appealing is a difficult thing to do. But M night, you know, if you're an M night Shyamalan fan, he's checking all the boxes for the visual aesthetic. I mean, it's really, he's, he's in his bag of tricks. He's doing all of the different focus shifting things that he likes to do. Lots of, um, strategically positioning objects in the frame. Uh, I think it's called mise-en-scene Kirk. I think is the term that you usually refer to it as, you know, uh, having the dock in the center of the frame while the characters are off center. It just really creates a nice visual um, feel and, and overall style to it. Though I don't know that style is the right word, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. And I like that about it. And I think the other thing too is M. Night Shyamalan is the sort of master of suspense. And while you don't know... You, while you don't feel scared, because I never did feel scared in this movie, and I actually, I, I have to blame a lot of that on the marketing of the film, because they just, they give so, so much away. Um, you know that they're not going to come in there and kill them, and you know that it's not going to be an hour of, of them trying to survive with these people, etc. You know that, you know the basic premise. So that's a bummer, but you don't know what's going to happen, and he never really shows his hand on that front, all the way down to the very final moments of the movie whenever the resolution presents itself. You don't know what's happened. Now, I don't like the choice that he made with the resolution of the film. I think that it was strange, and I'll get into that in a little bit, but I have to give him credit for not making it predictable, You know, especially with something that seems like it was probably headed towards predictability. The whole time you're going is what's happening real or is it not, you know? And, and it, you wait a really long time before you really know the answer to that question. So I, I give him credit for that. All right, Kirk, let's move on to the other side and talk about uh, the critiques and notes we have for Mr. Shyamalan. I'm getting a sense from both of us so far that there are extensive uh, thoughts on how to improve this film, but I will turn yeah. it over to you to get us kicked off for director shoes. Yeah, I just want to hold on. Let me adjust my camera here. The close-ups in this movie, bro. Yes, are aggressive <laughs> to say the I least. Have never seen the pores in, in all of Jonathan Groff's face, but now I can say that I have, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Like. A lot of the times when you're wanting to convey that, you know, no way out, what, you know, what's the raw emotion that you're feeling? You can't mask anything. There's nowhere to hide. Those sorts of things. You you can get a close up, but in a thriller, in a thriller slash horror film, as M. Night Shyamalan should know, is you have to create space 
space in order to know, oh no, where is this threat coming from? This person is all alone. And you cut to their face and you cut back to, to a wider shot to see them in the space that they might die or they might run. Like the suspense was not there because of this because we spent 90% of the time up our characters noses with the with the cannon uh of of the of the camera it's it's insane i don't understand how that was such a big miss through this um i don't have any emotional connection to anyone obviously i don't want to see uh the win the daughter die if if any one of these characters died and most of them do Spoiler alert. (laughs) It doesn't bother me. There wasn't really a moment except, as I mentioned, Rupert Grint, because his plea for life was very real. I was like, oh, man, maybe don't kill him, you know, Um, and anyone else. It was just like, whatever, kill them all. I don't care. (laughs) Let the girl walk out of here uh, like Mariachi, like Antonio Banderas. So those things, it's very boring. The dialogue just really fell flat for me. And it's very hard to to just like throw all of that out there because a group of people, a group of actors, a group of casting crew producers came together and they tried to create this piece and it didn't go well. So it's not fair at any point for us to come in and say, right? Like, Oh, the movie was terrible, but it is like you have, (laughs) you have more time. Maybe you don't get paid for that time, but you have time to re-edit this. You have time to rewrite this before before it goes into full production mode. Um, that's what really what really counts for for a film to speak to people. And I'm confused at why there are so many so many really good reviews on this movie. It's really shocking to me. But this movie had really good potential with the baseline of this script, with the baseline of these characters. It's just putting it into play did not work well. And it's mostly upsetting. Uh, I sound angry, but I'm mostly upset because it really could have been quite neat, quite enticing. And a call back to M. Night Shyamalan's, you know, heyday. Um, Take out those close-ups, and I think this movie would have been exponentially better. It could have been three, four, five points higher than the score that I'm going to give it today. But it really just missed the mark on so many levels. And I'm sad to tell you my score in just a little bit. But Cam, what do you got today? Man, I have just a a uh, a litany of complaints with this movie. Yeah. I'm going to keep my director's shoes focused in really two primary areas. First of all, I was horrified to learn when I got home that this was based off of a novel. And it's not just that. At first I was like, oh man, this wasn't an original concept and it still was bad, badly written? That sucks. But then I learned what the ending of the novel was and learned, in my opinion, that the ending was at least five times better than the way that they chose to end this film. And that sucked. So just to recap for everyone, because if you're listening to it, you should be familiar with the plot or not care if you get spoiled. Those are the two distinctions here. The film ends with them making the decision you know, Ben Aldridge's character making the decision. I can't remember 
Eric or is it Eric and Andrew? Is that the name? I believe Jonathan Groff is Eric. Jonathan Groff is Eric. Yeah. And, Only and, because <laughs> Aldrin says Eric 1000. Yes, that's right. That's true. Ben Aldridge's character, Andrew, makes the choice to kill Eric to save the world. Um, and he and Wynn go off to live the rest of their life together. Now, the ending in the book is that there is a struggle for the pistol um, between Leonard, I believe Leonard and Andrew, if I read the synopsis correctly, and when the daughter gets shot and killed, and we, the book ends with you not knowing if Doomsday is actually coming, and those two actually, le- like moving on, having to know that they made that choice because it wasn't a willing sacrifice, and so the Doomsday should still be marching toward them, but we don't, you know, the book ends without the audience knowing if it actually happened or not. That is a million times better because it has theming. There's the death of innocence. There's, you know, this idea of what's real, what's fake. There's a social commentary built in there. There's a commentary on humanity about trusting each other versus not, uh, you know, you could tie it back to social media and fake news and all of these things that are so rich and they're all just sitting right there. And, and what M night Shyamalan decides to do is create an ending that doesn't really have any major theme other than like, man, imagine if that happened to you, that would suck, right? Like that's the theme. That's what we're supposed to leave this movie with. I'm shocked by that decision. I'm shocked by it. If anything, you would think Andrew's character would die for not trusting. I don't know. There, there, there are different ways you can go with the interpretation of this film, but the way they decided to go makes no sense and makes it a much, 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 much worse movie. I am just like appalled by that. And unless M. Night Shyamalan can give a very specific explanation of why they decided to end it that way for a specific thematic reason, I just cannot be at peace with it. Okay. The other part that I will focus on is what an insult to the audience is intelligence this film is. The number one rule of writing that I always hear from reading about writers, etc. I haven't written a screenplay or anything like that, but you have to trust your audience. And I find this to be so important whenever I'm watching films. You have to show people, not tell them. You don't have to tell them every single thing that happens. You don't have to tell them every mechanical piece of the film that's happening. You have to allow them to operate within the reality that you've created, figure out things for themselves. It's a richer, more fulfilling experience. So when at the end of this movie or toward the end of this movie, Jonathan Groff very clumsily walks the audience through the fact that these guys represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I audibly scoffed, which is, which was embarrassing. I didn't want to do it, but I did because I'm like, Yeah, uh, of course it is. In fact, (laughs) if there was one thing you didn't need to say, it was that. We we all knew that. And then they go as far as to like show the color of shirt they were wearing and and go through the names and say which one was which. Like it's excruciating. And M. Night Shyamalan just couldn't not say everything that needed to be said in this movie. And it's like, man, you have to let people get there on their own. And if they don't, that is the, you know, that's an occupational hazard. You have to write your movie in such a way that they can get there on their own. You cannot make that mistake. You're calling your audience dumb. You're saying, here you go, Dumbo, just in case you didn't know, this is what this movie is meant to symbolize. And I hate that. 
I hate that that was the decision that was made and it made me angry. And it's like, we're already at the end of the movie that I didn't like. And now you're going to insult my intelligence and, and spit in my face about this. And I just, it filled me with rage. So I don't understand that choice at all. You know how that could have been remedied is that we get a sense that, Oh, what's Aldridge's character? Andrew. We get a sense that Andrew has a uh, a firm family foundation because his parents are the ones that are broken up over their relationship. Yes. We we never got a shot of of these two or even uh, even Andrew like in church, right? Like where they could have had the opportunity to introduce the idea that one or both of them had any kind of experience in church previously. So then when you just drop the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, or, or any kind of art or anything anything that would have led to this without having Jonathan Groff stare into the eyes of the camera and the audience and and deliberately say everything. There was an opportunity to tease this earlier as a breadcrumb, possibly a red herring, and then you could have come to the end of this and then just had this, oh my goodness, do you realize who we're up against? And then say nothing else than that, right? Like super vague, let the, let us connect the dots. But there was no real foundation for it. And because there was no foundation, it's it's uh, common knowledge um, that that of the world that M. Night Shyamalan is trusting that the audience has, which is why he had to be so deliberate. And because of that, it sounded terrible, absolutely terrible. Yes, and all of that. And, and also just, it, it's like he goes out of his way to undermine every possible theme that could have possibly existed in this film to make a film that says nothing. It yes. doesn't, this film has no opinion on anything. It doesn't say anything. It dances around a lot of stuff. It, it, prevents, it, it presents for consideration a few things before it squashes them. But what it sounds like from the book and the way the book ended is that the book did have an opinion on... A lot of things, including, you know, you know, the plight of the LGBTQ plus community, the mm-hmm. plight of, you know, people who are struggling with the reality versus uh, misinformation versus social media, mm-hmm. etc. Um, organized religion, whatever. Like lots of these themes that are very common these Cults. days. But it sounds yeah. like this movie had a opinion on that, and or the book had the opinion on that, and the movie just didn't. It just chose not to have an opinion on that. And so then you're like, okay, why is it a gay couple? Why does that matter? Why does their story matter? Why should I care about that? Why does it matter that Wynn is here? Why does it matter that these guys have these backstories? Like, none of it matters because they go out of their way to undermine every possible theme and message that this movie could have, other than man, wouldn't it suck if you had to kill a family member to save the world or vice versa and like, kill kill the world to, to save a family member? And it's like, yeah, I think everybody can unanimously agree that that would suck. But like, would give suck. us an opinion. <laughs> give us an opinion and a statement on something, and it refused to do that. So Right, right. Sucks. Okay. Oh, man. Oh, man. Here we I'm go. I'm getting fired up. I'm getting fired up. Okay. <sighs> Final thoughts and scores, Kirk. Let's Let's have at it. Final thoughts and scores. Okay, so there were, uh, there was a couple at the top of the theater that Cam and I sat at. There was a couple near the bottom of the theater, and then there were 
there was another couple that came and left before this movie finished. <laughs> and then there was a group of five. Um, there was like a fifth wheel, like two, there were two couples and, and a fifth person. When this film ended, uh, I stood up and I turned around four out of the five people directly behind us were <laughs> absolutely passed out the fifth friend in this group was just kind of look he looked at me and cam and then he looked at his buddies and he was like hey guys, hey guys the, the movie's over <laughs> <laughs> had to audibly wake them up and I, I don't blame him i was i was getting kind of sleepy i i considered even nudging cam and walking out of this movie as well it was just not anything exciting and any more with wanting to get people to the theaters to have a shared experience. My shared experience is I wish I was sleeping with the people behind me, or I wish I had walked out with the couple that was no longer there. I uh, just absolutely just un underwhelming all, all throughout. I believe I'm not positive, but I believe this will be my lowest score ever given. It's Whoa. not even. <laughs> it's it's bad. Whoa! It's bad. Uh, one of the first films, uh, maybe the top one of the first like 20 films we we reviewed was called The Kitchen. Got a just a scathing review from our from us here at Popcorn for Breakfast. Uh, this one I expected more. The actors deserved more. The audience certainly deserved more. This gets a 0.9 no out of way. 10 kernels no for me today. way. Yes. Below a one? Below a one. I could not yes. actually give it a full integer. That is certainly your lowest score today. There's no okay. doubt. There's no doubt about it. Like, I know for a fact. I think The Kitchen got like a 1.7 or something right. from you, and that's the lowest one that I can remember, and this is not, yeah, this this is much lower. So, mm -hmm. holy guacamole, that is a low <laughs> score. Um, I can't say that I'll be much higher. Uh, listen, I have I have major issues with this movie. I've outlined many of them. Some other th others that I haven't really outlined, um, I won't go into great detail about, but basically just the overall cheeserificness of this movie, um, the choice to make doomsday happen and allow us to see it happening so that there wasn't any sort of, um, you know, ambiguity or, or, or any sort of, uh, you know, making that vague, uh, that, that I think hurt the movie. There are just so many things that hurt the movie. There is this weird scene at the end that I think they thought was, heartfelt or touching where it's like they turn on the radio and it's a song that Eric liked. It's the only song we know that's associated with him in any sort of way because of one, two second flashback and Ben Aldridge's character, Andrew turns on the radio and then he turns it off and then wind turns it on and then he turns it off again and then he turns it back on and it's painful. It's cheesy. It's horrific. And that's how the movie ends. I just, M. Night Man, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? But I just think that you got lost in the sauce majorly on this film, and I was shocked to see that this film has received mixed reviews, but on the positive side of mixed. I really need somebody to, like, I, I'm begging you. If you saw this movie and liked it, I want to talk about it. I have to, because I, yes. I am really having a hard time reconciling how much... I did not like this and I want to know 
why people are liking it and, and what's going on. Um, cause people are, and that's good. Like, I'm glad that people have found a way to enjoy this movie. I was not able to do that. And I would like to know what it is about the movie that stuck with you seriously with an open mind. No, no judgment because this just did not work for me at all. And, and I, I don't know. It, it just, it missed the boat. And so for me, it gets a 2.4 out of 10. I think, um, you know, as much as I hate the decisions that were made with the story and as much as I hated the acting, I I do think that M. Night Shyamalan made the movie that he was trying to make. Uh, so he didn't get lost in the sauce in the sense that he didn't end up making the movie that he was trying to make. I just think the movie he was trying to make sucked. So <laughs> it's like he made it the right way, I suppose, but it just was not good. Um, also, there was one weird thing. I forgot to mention this, Kirk. There's a part of the movie which, in which they clearly re-recorded a spoken line, yes. and so it looks like a, a like a foreign like a, a international dub happening. Spaghetti Western, yeah. So that's when they when this happens, it's called ADR. <laughs> uh, you bring the actors back into the studio. Maybe there was some uh, background noise that you lost the the actual footage, and so you're walking through. Uh, I don't know, an airport and there were too many background talkers or feet clicking. And so they have to drop all the audio and recreate it all. So this one, he's just sitting on the, well, he's screaming in his, in his chair that he's tied up to always screaming. And what's on the screen cam. Oh, the, the pandemic thing. The, the most, the closest to the pandemic, I think they call it X nine X. Yeah. X something. Yeah. Is this sort of flu thing, which only, what do you think? I think maybe they said COVID and they swapped it out. What do you think? Why would they, but why would they swap it out? I don't know. They must have, I mean, they must have said it or something, but I just wonder why, like they didn't want to, they didn't want this to take place in our reality or something. I don't really know. It was a really bad dub, like horrible. So noticeable. So noticeable. Like I, a lot of times don't catch stuff like that on a first viewing. I'm like too, I'm listening too hard to see that, but I looked at Kirk immediately and was like, what, what just happened there? Cause it was like egregious. It was so bad. Yeah. I think that if uh, M night had straight away from the extreme close-ups, we probably would have missed it, but because we were <laughs> inches from his lips, like right up next to his face, the audio did not match his lips. And instead of X nine, he's saying something. So if you're going to the theater, having listened to us first and you choose to see this film, Keep an eye on that scene. Yeah, Keep read the lips. On, on read Andrew. the lips. I want to know because I'll probably never watch this movie again. So <laughs> I need somebody to tell me what what he said. Um, all right. Well, we did it. That's our review. <laughs> and I told myself we weren't going to talk about this movie for an hour because I didn't want to. And we keep talking about movies for an hour. And here we are, 55 minutes. We talked about it for 55 minutes. I'm so right. sorry. <laughs> but... <laughs> I stand by all the points that I've made, but I still want to hear from somebody who liked the movie to figure out what I am missing, if anything, and and to put the puzzle pieces together because the cognitive dissonance that exists in my brain right now, it's just not computing. I can't remember a time. Like there are certainly been movies that I love that critics hate. That happens all the time. (laughs) But um, usually I feel like when I see a movie, I'm like, when I see a movie that I think is just objectively very bad, I'm like, okay, Critics are going to hate that. And so I was thinking like maybe middling reviews. So when I saw that it had like what, whatever, like 70 something percent of Rotten Tomatoes, I about died. I, I couldn't, I could not 
believe it. That was shocking to me. So, yeah. If anybody has thoughts on that and is on the other side of this, please hit us up on Discord yes. or, or social or whatever. We want to talk about it. Yes, please. Please tell us. Tell us what you got out of this movie. You, um, we will not make fun of you. I promise. This no. is not like a setup that we're going to... We Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. I just want to hear it. I, we're not going to record you and say, guess what? Listen to this idiot. No, like seriously, <laughs> I just want to know. I really We want do. the perspective because maybe it could raise our score. Like, you know what? I get it. Just like the happening challenge. Yeah, I they're going to be like, like, actually, M. Night Shyamalan is making fun of Doomsday movies. And it's like, wait a second. You know, something like that. Brilliant. We'll see. But <laughs> until that time, until we hear from any of you about this movie, thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it, as always. Or if you watched on YouTube, thank you for tuning in. Um, next week, we'll be getting back on the horse and reviewing some more Oscar Best Picture nominees to get you set up for the Oscars. But we want to give a special thanks to the band Rhetoric for creating our original music, as well as our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs. And we will see you guys next week. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.